Hello and welcome to the Cultural Peeps podcast. My name is Ian Wielden and I'm a lecturer in the School of Arts and Cultures at Newcastle University. This series is part of an ongoing project which explores different career pathways across the museum, gallery, heritage and wider cultural sectors. I really want this series to do three things. The first is to help early career professionals understand the huge range of ever-changing job profiles that now exist. The second aim is to help those professionals interpret job titles in the context of different venues and organisations. Sometimes jobs with the same title can be radically different depending on the organisation. The third aim is to help listeners understand that the people that make up any field of work are all human and that in turn plays a significant part in their unfolding career pathway and decision-making processes. A few caveats. The recordings that form the basis for the podcasts aren't technically perfect. They're often grabbed in busy offices and in between meetings, so you can frequently hear the everyday world of work whirring on in the background. Just a final note, these podcasts are edited down from longer conversations, but I've tried to keep in as much of the original content as possible. And welcome to episode 12 of the Cultural Peeps podcast. I'm in Gosford today, outside Newcastle, interviewing the PR practitioner David Brookbanks. David is the founder of Ludlow Street, a communications and PR agency which specialises in the arts, culture and leisure sectors. David has worked for a range of clients including Visit England, the Royal Shakespeare Company, Theatre Royal and also Newcastle Gateshead Initiative. We started our conversation today talking about what it's like to work as a freelancer and trying to balance a freelance career in PR with a healthy home life in the age of the 24-hour news cycle. David outlines his average working day and details how he tries to manage both his time and his approach to clients and projects. We then move on to talk about David's journey to becoming a PR practitioner, starting with his initial interests in both art and journalism at school. David describes his experience of school as stressful and fairly difficult, outlining how he didn't feel particularly cut out for academia and how the systems he was working within probably actually constrained his performance rather than bringing out the best of him. At this point in the conversation, we talk a little bit about alternative routes through education and the benefits of different approaches, such as vocational training, placements and apprenticeships. David talks about how he wasn't quite sure what a career in journalism or media might look like until he was well into his undergraduate degree, and things started to come together for him while he was studying at Warrington, particularly when he organised and undertook a placement within the press department at the newly opened Virgin Music in London. This is something that emerges as really important in David's development and something of a light bulb moment. He recalls pushing very hard to secure both the placement itself and also to be involved in interesting, meaningful and challenging work once he was there. And this is something that he says isn't normally in his nature, but something that he felt that he had to do given the pressure that he was under and the circumstances he found himself in. 
Following graduation, David went travelling, seizing what he saw as a unique opportunity to see the world. And after returning to Newcastle, when he undertook a non-media related job for 12 months, he finally secured a job at the PR consultancy company Carroll Marketing. It was at Carroll Marketing and through work with clients like Northern Stage, a theatre and production company based in Newcastle, that David was drawn back to his initial interest in the arts and culture sector and saw a way of tying these areas of interest together. David then went on to work at Theatre Royal Newcastle as the press officer, regularly working with local television and media in support of the theatre's programme. He describes that experience as a steep learning curve, but something that equipped him with skills that he still now relies on as a practising freelancer. Towards the end of his time with Theatre Royal Newcastle, David secured and undertook a second placement, this time in New York with the Alvin Ailey American Dance Theatre, and that was organised after seeing the piece Revelations, which was performed as part of their UK tour in 2005. David then joined the Newcastle Gateshead Initiative, sometimes known as NGI, where he worked on a number of high-profile campaigns, including the Football Association's bid to host the FIFA World Cup in 2018 and 2022, the London 2012 Olympics and Paralympic Games in Newcastle, and most recently the Rugby World Cup in 2015. David then gradually began to develop a freelance portfolio, initially taking on projects whilst remaining part-time at Newcastle Gateshead Initiative before finally leaving to become entirely freelance. I've put links to as many of the organisations and projects that we cover in the podcast description, so if there is anything that you'd like to look up that David and I cover in our conversation, then that's a good starting point. Don't forget you can follow the podcast on Twitter, Instagram, SoundCloud and Facebook using the handle at Cultural Peeps. And if you want a bit more information about the Careers Pathway project or about any of the conversations or participants, then there is a project blog which is available at culturalpeeps.wordpress.com. That's it from me for now. I hope you enjoy the episode and I hope you find it useful. Today, David, if we could just start um, with a little bit of information about about you and what you currently do. No problem. Um, I run a small freelance marketing and PR company called Ludlow Street. Um, it was originally set up um, to service clients in the arts and cultural sector. Um, that was an area that I had real particular interest in at the time. Um, it's around two and a half years old now. In that time, I've diversified a little bit, um, not necessarily focused solely on arts and cultural sector, moved out slightly into um, more corporate work, um, a lot of B2B as well, business to business clients. Um, It's a really rewarding, interesting way to work. So what's an average day like for you? Is Is there such a thing as an average day? I think that would completely depend on the clients and what's happening that particular day. So I could have a very, very structured week. Um, I'll know exactly what I'm doing. I can plan that all out. Or one phone call could throw my entire week off. Um, 
And that is the nature of public relations and working with the media, that actually um, you have a certain element of control over what you're doing, but you need to be really reactive as well. Um, so my week can change in the space of one phone call. Just because of something that might have happened on social media or... That's it. It could be an issue with the client. It could be an issue with someone the client works with. Um, it might be a broader issue in the news. So, for example, one of the organisations that I work with at the moment is um, the North East Local Enterprise Partnership. Um, so if you think about everything that's happening around Brexit at the moment, then there's always a need for reactive comment and statement on that, which is something that I have to deliver. So it can really be a, a range of things that happen, but it would be difficult to try and outline what my week looks like because it can just change so, so drastically. So what kind of projects do you work on with cultural venues, I guess, first of all? So in terms of the cultural venues that I work with, um, presently I work with a company called Arts and Heritage, who are based in Hexham, and they run a programme called Meeting Point, which is about working with museums to commission artists to create a piece of contemporary artwork in their venue. Um, so I've been working with them for about three years on that project. I work with a company called Helix Arts, who are based in North Shields. Um, they co-produce artworks with local communities. They partner artists with um, local people to create great art. I've done work with um, a lot of Newcastle and Gateshead's cultural venues, as well as venues outside in Northumberland as well. So Woodhorn Museum is a good example of another organisation I do work with at the moment. Um, and I recently also did a project called City of Dreams with Newcastle Gateshead cultural venues, which is about um, encouraging young people to participate and be involved in the arts. And they've got an ambition for 10 years' time that every young person in Newcastle and Gateshead is engaging with arts in some way. So do you think the need for that kind of work has grown in the last few years, especially post-austerity measures and, and the impact that's had on the cultural sector? I think the approach and the flexibility that freelancers provide works quite well for cultural organisations at the moment. So a lot of cultural venues have maybe found that their funding's been stripped back. They can't maybe have, especially smaller organisations, they can't have a full-time comms or marketing person in post. So actually having a freelancer who can maybe provide one or two days a month of support, that might be enough. Um, and I think that model seems to work very well for people. Um, and I found particularly with the clients I work with, some of them are smaller arts organisations. Um, they don't have a budget that they could have a full-time person in post. So having me in for a set period of time or knowing that they can ring me up for a particular issue as and when they need me, that tends to work. So do you find that you have to tender for that work or is reputation an important part of what you're now doing? I think reputation, I, mean, I think in the time I've been running my freelance business, I think I've only had to tender for one bit of work and that was with Arts and Heritage actually that was a company I'd not done any work with previously right. and they didn't know me um, so I had to go through the tender process for that but everything else has been referrals right, okay. word of mouth so actually everything I've done prior to that has actually helped me to build to this now exactly yeah. to build the business that I've got now yeah, yeah. 
And then do you, are you working primarily within the northeast here or, or do you have a, a wider practice that's outside of the region? It's mainly northeast. I have done work... Um, so in a previous role, I worked with a destination marketing organisation um, and I did a little bit of work with Visit England, which was on a national scale. But majority of the work um, has been focused in the northeast. Yeah. So is this something that you thought you'd be doing when you were at school? Is this something that you had an ambition to do? So at school, I wanted to be a journalist. All I knew that I was good at was writing. That was the thing that I enjoyed. And the only job role that I knew that you could do with writing was a journalist. Right. Um, I can't remember a time when anyone sat me down and explained what public relations was or roles in the media. I wasn't really aware. Well, so the journalist thing was just a prominent um, career that you could identify with. Yeah. Like a kind of broad... So do you remember any careers advice when you were at school? Um, well, I remember at GCSE level... And I was thinking about what I wanted to do at A-level. And they didn't do a media degree or anything in that area. Okay. Uh, sorry, media, A-level, sorry, at my school. So we actually asked the head at that time if we could implement one. And one of the teachers was supportive of that, mm. but they wouldn't do it. So at that point, I knew that's kind of the field I wanted to go down. But I couldn't actually study a particular topic in that unless I went to college. Um, so I stayed on and did A-levels. But the only conversation I can remember having was probably GCSE age. Right. And I think... Well, in terms of the careers advice. Yeah, and I actually think it was just... And again, this is no, um, no disrespect to the person that was giving me the advice at the time, but I don't think they probably understood... Yeah, the complexities what, of the roles. Exactly. They probably didn't understand yeah. the, the variation of things I could do if I had an interest in writing. I yeah. think they just thought as well, oh, be a journalist. But you just kind of... A plunk your way into, you know, well, writing equals journalism. Exactly. Kind of thing. So you must have taken subjects at GCSE that related to that English. Yeah. So GCSE level, um, English language and literature, um, I think the standard subjects as well. I think I did sociology at GCSE and I did that at A level as well. Okay. Um, but I had a real interest at the time in art and design. So for A levels... I did um, art and design, English language, English literature, sociology, and then general studies tagged on at the end. That's quite interesting. So the art, like, did you always think, well, I'm going to end up doing something in journalism that's related to visual arts or culture in some way? It wasn't. I think that was just an interest area for right. me and something I enjoyed. Okay. So I'd always been interested in, in art. Um, and I felt like it was something I was good at as well um, so I wanted to carry that on um, and it and I mean ironically I actually didn't do very well <laughs> in the end and the thing that in, in English or in art and design oh right okay because I took that through to A level but actually what swung it for me and actually gave me a better grade was there was a written element oh right okay, I had to do exactly so I did a whole thesis around Matisse and his use of colour right. and looked at it throughout his career. So he had all these different phases, didn't he? It was at the red phase, the yeah, blue yeah. phase. Um, so actually what got me a reasonably good grade... Was that written well, part? Was the written part. That's really interesting, yeah. isn't it? So were you doing things outside of school at that point? 
that related to journalism or were you just focusing on the subjects that you were studying? So I did the school newspaper, as I think a lot of people did, which is probably what sparked a lot of thoughts around being a journalist, writing for a paper. Um, I, did, I had a job outside of school, but it was nothing linked to what um, I wanted to do as a career. I was working in a bakery um, at the top of the, uh, top of the street where I lived. So I didn't really have a lot of awareness or roots into employment at that point yeah. and what I wanted to do. Um, everything was just mainly through school. So were you gearing up to... Did you always think you were going to go to university? I, do you know what? I probably didn't, actually, because I didn't think I was going to be good enough, if I'm being brutally honest. Right. Um, I did a lot better at GCSEs than I thought I would. Um, I've never been... I wouldn't say I'm hugely academic, so... I actually went down to pick my GCSE results up thinking I was going to go to college and I ended up with enough to do A-levels and all my friends were staying to do A-levels. So I thought, well, I will as well, I'll do that. Um, and I really struggled at A-level. Academically with the brick? Yeah. Right. It was too much for me. And I think that model of um, studying for two years and then doing an exam to show what you've learned at the end of two years was just... It was too much. too much. And I think that's why in, in subjects like art and design, which I really enjoyed, I actually didn't do very well because I didn't make that leap um, that A-levels required. And looking back, I wonder if actually the school environment was part of the problem. So A-levels, the A-level school I went to, you still had to wear a uniform. Um, it was quite regimented. It still felt like you were in school. So you had none of the independence that you would get at a sixth form college. And I think that was something that I struggled with. So you um, were ready to leave earlier than perhaps you did? Yeah, I think I was probably... I think I was probably a bit... Well, I don't want to say I was obnoxious, but I think I was just... <laughs> I wanted some independence and I wasn't, I wasn't getting it. So I used to wear... Good example. And I, this is still me now, at age 40. I have an issue wearing proper shoes... And at school, I used to wear my Adidas trainers and that's all I wanted to wear and it would get picked up all the time by the teachers saying I would get written up or I'd get letters home and this was when I was 17 years old. Right. And I thought, I'm 17 and I'm getting told what shoes to wear. So things like that I just really, really struggled with. Um, and I think I was doing a lot of growing up, a lot of different experiences at the time and actually school learning took a bit of a step back. So when I actually came to do my A-levels, I didn't get great results. I think I got a C, two Ds and an E. Um, and it didn't get me into the universities that I wanted to get into either. Right. So what happened at that point? So I, I had an idea of the... I don't know if it's the same for a lot of people, actually, but I, I started to think about... It was probably locations of where I wanted to go to university. And the course was important, but obviously thinking I'm going to spend three years here, yeah. it, what I wanted to be somewhere that I'd enjoy. So I um, had in my head I really wanted to go to Manchester. Um, and Manchester had lots of different universities. I had the Metropolitan Uni, I had Manchester Uni, and they all did strong media courses. And when I actually got my results back, I'd got conditional offers for both didn't get the grades right. so couldn't go I remember sitting in the sixth form common room flicking through prospectuses 
um, thinking, well, what am I going to do? Where am I going to go? It's been and really stressful. Yeah, it was awful. Because especially when everyone else has... Oh, yeah, got what they wanted or yeah. the majority of people. Right. And everyone's off celebrating and you're thinking, <laughs> I've got no idea what I'm going to do. Um, so I found a, a prospectus for something called University College, College Warrington. Okay. Um, I didn't know what a university college was. I didn't. I knew Warrington was near Manchester. So I thought, well, this, <laughs> this might get me where I want to be. Had a look through, and they actually did a really interesting course called Multimedia Journalism. So it was photography, journalism, but also a lot of um, computer design, um, writing for the web, building websites, building CD-ROMs, yeah. all that type of stuff. So I thought, actually, this could be yeah. a really interesting thing for me. Because at that point, um, when I left school, I mean, when I, when I left A-levels... I didn't have an email address. I didn't re- we didn't have a computer at home that had the internet. Yeah. So all of that was brand new um, to me. So actually, it was only when I got to university that that whole world opened up for me. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, so it was a, a bit of a strange route as to where I ended up at university. But actually, it was a really good place for me. And that course really opened my eyes up to the world of work because there was an element of that that was a semester spent on a work placement. Right. So what year was that? Was that was the second year. Right, of a three-year course. Yeah. Okay. So first-year course. And, and another thing to mention, actually, just in terms of what we're talking about, with A-levels and struggling with that structure of work, um, getting to university and working on modules. So broken up projects yeah it was so much more manageable for me and I felt a lot more comfortable and like we said before I could have my own independence I could be the person I wanted to be um and all that made a massive difference and I actually started to kind of excel a bit more in that environment so that course has given you lots of different skills that would equip you to it sounds like be anything that you want within that field or or potentially explore routes so what kind of placements did they offer well, you can actually set it up yourself. Right. So the first year we did modules in journalism. So we had a lecturer who used to work at the Liverpool Echo. Um, we did a um, course on photography. And then we also started to do um, work around some web design and writing for the web and thinking about how you need to change language and audience, that type of thing. Yeah. So we learned the structure of how you write a news story, the who, what, where, when. Um, but actually writing for the web was totally different. So there was loads of different elements um, that went into the course. And then when it came to work placement time, which was the second year, um, I didn't really know what to do. And I was thinking, well, do I just go to a local paper again? That's literally all I knew. If yeah. anyone mentioned jobs in the media, that's what I thought a job in the media was. Right. Um, but within... Within the university, there was people doing TV production, there was people doing radio. Um, so all these people were approaching different organisations to go for work placements, and it completely opened my eyes to think, actually, I didn't even know that was a job, that was a career path. Um, so a girl I worked with on the course, she was from Richmond in London, um, and we were chatting one day, and she just said, oh, I'm, well, I'm going to go back home and work in London. Um, and I've managed to get a placement at a record company. And I was like, oh, God, that 
sounds amazing. And, um, <laughs> and she got a job in the press department of Virgin Records, which yeah. was a subsidiary of EMI. Um, and at the time, I just thought, I didn't even know that was a job. I didn't even know that's what some, that was something people did. Um, so we had a chat about it. And she said, well, why don't you explore it? Why don't you reach out to someone? So within Virgin Records, they had a new media division. And that was actually building the websites and doing lots of video work. And it was all brand new. It was all yeah. um, a new area for them. And I reached out to the new media director. She was a lady called Danny Van Emden. And I don't know where I got the confidence from at the time, but I just felt like I'd just go for it and just put an email in um, and just pestered and pestered and pestered for as long as I could. And then she eventually gave in. So did she say no to start with or...? They'd never taken a work placement. Right. Ever. They were a really small team. There was Danny headed up the team. There was two web designers and an admin person. And that was it. It was such a... If you think about a record company and they had acts like um, Spice Girls, Rolling Stones, Chemical Brothers, that was the size of their media department. Two web designers. That's how early it was. Did she just not say no, which was enough for you to keep going at that point? Or was it just kind of, we haven't had a placement, but there wasn't a word no in an email to you? I think she did the classic... um, leave that with us and we'll get back to you if there's any opportunities. <laughs> Left the door open. Yeah. Um, and I, I actually do remember at one point, she wrote me quite a terse email that said, I've not actually said yes to this. And I felt like I was, at that point, I think I, I kind of damaged the relationship. I was right. just kind of pushing too hard. And then in the end, she said, yep, fine, come down um, and we'll see what you can do. Uh-huh. So was that, uh, how structured was that within your course? Was that something that you get credit for? Yeah. Right. So you, um, you had feedback forms that the employer had to fill in yeah. um, about what you delivered, what you'd achieved at that point. But um, you had to drive that as much as you could. So did you have to structure the content of the placement? So the placement could be... It could be anything you wanted. It could be any organisation you wanted. But it had to fit and have a relevance to the course. Right. So it couldn't be something, you know, if you were studying radio, you couldn't do something, disappear off into TV or something. Yeah. So actually it fitted quite well in terms of what I was doing. Um, but what, what was a struggle when I actually got there? So the new media team was based on the fourth floor of the building. They put me in the basement. <laughs> um, and I was in the a logging room where they kept all the tapes. So I was sat essentially with an archiver. Um, so I was on the ground floor at a computer. I had no contact with the team. Right. Um, apart from I'd pop up in the morning, they might give me a few little odd tasks to do and I'd go da- back down to the, floor, uh, the ground floor. Um, and I was getting nothing out of this whole experience. Right. Um, and I wasn't really enjoying it. And it was, it was nine weeks so it was a long time yeah. if this was going to be my life in the basement with the archiver. Um, I was just really determined to get something out of it. So I pushed and pushed and pushed and pushed to get more opportunity, to get more things to do. And um, eventually they moved me up right, okay. <laughs> to the fourth floor. <laughs> so again, quite, there's a bit of a pattern there, mm. being quite tenacious. with. And it's bizarre thinking because it doesn't feel like that's part of my character. Right. If someone asked me that, you know, 
if I had that type of personality, I wouldn't think... Is that just because you were passionate about what you wanted to do? I don't know. I, I think I just wanted to get something out of it. I didn't want it to be a waste. Right. Um, because I wanted to do well in my university course because I knew it could help me get a job. Um, but also I thought, what's the point of spending nine weeks... Um, when I've worked so hard to get here, and it was costing a lot of money as well, because, I mean, if that, it might be something we come to talk about. But in terms of placements um, and opportunities like that, I wasn't getting paid. Yeah, so for, to relocate for that as well. Exactly. So I was living in London mm. in a shared house. Um, I wasn't earning anything. So for nine weeks, that's a long time. Yeah. Um, and obviously, you know, you've got the whole of London social life as well that you want to experience. Um, so I just wanted to make sure that it, it benefited me and I got something out of it. Yeah. So actually, yeah, I did bulk the hell out of them. So what kind of things did you end up doing? Well, it was interesting because, um, again, it was the writing element. I didn't have any of the technical knowledge that the guys who built the websites had, but the writing was something I enjoyed. So um, they'd get me to do track reviews or album reviews. They sent me to festivals to review festivals. Um, and actually, they started to see that I did have something there. I had a little bit of talent yeah. and I had some ambition. Um, and then they started to give me bigger tasks to do. So I'd go with the um, two web designers um, to go and interview artists and right. things like that. So, you know... Even if it's just holding a camera. Yeah. Um, you're in that environment, though, and yeah. you're being exposed to how the mechanics of those situations work, which I think is really important, isn't it? Exactly. And again, when we talk about um, experience of job roles and careers, I was just being introduced to all these different things that I could do. So, oh, what, so I could be a journalist just for the web? Yeah. I don't need to be the local paper, and I can write about music, yeah. or I could do videography... You know, there's all these amazing things I was being introduced to that I wasn't aware of before. So it really started to open my eyes into what I could do. So that sounds like a, quite a big moment in your, well, degree for starters, but in, your, in the process of figuring out what you wanted to do. So what, what, what came next? You know, when you went back to university, what did going back to university look like? So back to university was third year, that was a big chunk in terms of the weighting of the degree, so I really had to put the work in again. On like the dissertation and things like that. Exactly that, and, I, and the work placement, again, influenced what I did for my dissertation. So, I, so it was at that point where streaming and Napster, everything like that had started to develop, so I actually did something around um, how streaming would impact Virgin Records. Okay. Um, and, did, and I actually supplied that to them at the end right. as well. Um, so, yeah, went back to university and actually stayed on at Virgin Records. So in the holidays, I would go back. And they paid me, actually, at that point, which was really good. And then I used to get little bits of work that I could do at university as well. Um, so it really... It was a kind of pivotal moment for me because yeah. it just opened my eyes to this whole other world I didn't know was there. Yeah. Um, so you started to form more of an idea about what you wanted to do at the end of university by that point? Well, in my head, all I wanted to do was go back to Virgin Records. Right. <laughs> that's, 
and pester them for a job. Essentially, <laughs> that was my ambition. Um, and because I still had that foot in the door, because I was still doing little bits of work um, out of term time, yeah. and I was going back down to London, and they could see that I was really keen, really ambitious. So I got, I remember I got to the, actually it should, it's probably fair to say that actually within the music industry, it's incredibly competitive to get into. So here's this kid from Newcastle who's come down. Um, it's costing a lot, and I've got to say my parents helped out a lot in terms of paying for accommodation, all those type of things. Mm-hmm. But you had a lot of people who work in the media industry, um, especially in London, who are from London, possibly from quite wealthy backgrounds. They don't necessarily need the money, so they can do work placements for mm-hmm. a year, not get paid, that's okay, that's their foot in the door. Um, but for me, that wasn't really possible. I had to get a job, I had to get a paying job. Um, so, end of university, everything was going into getting this job at Virgin Records. So, I knew a lot of people there now, so I was getting people to put the word out if there's any opportunities to come up. And I remember everyone at university, we all went to Glastonbury Festival. as like a big kind of end of uni blowout. Um, and I was sat in my tent, and it was actually at this point, because I'd not got a job, that I'd discussed going travelling. Um, instead, taking a year out and just reassess things. Yeah. Um, and we were sat in a tent, and I got a phone call from someone who worked in college promotions. And college promotions is essentially working with unis, colleges to try and get new artists on college radios or freshers' performances, stuff like that. Um, and the guy that worked there rang me and said, oh, I'm leaving. Um, do you want the job? And I was like, what do you mean do I want the job? And he said, well, look, it's yours. Like, they know you. And if you want it, you've got it. And I actually turned it down. <laughs> so you worked with them before? Yeah. Right. Um, so it was, a, it was another part of Virgin Records called Innocent, which had acts like Atomic Kitten. It was very poppy, blue. Um, I'm trying to think who else was on that label. Billy, um, who was... Actress and a pop, a pop star at the time. So um, it was a lot more poppy. Um, not necessarily what I wanted to do, but still, it was the record industry. It was yeah. down in London. It would have been great. Um, yeah, and I said no. And at the time, that would have been year 2000. Um, they offered me £11,000. I was going to say, what, what, why did you turn it, turn it down? Did you turn it down there and then? Yeah. So I'd already kind of made the, the decision to go travelling. Right. So I kind of thought that's what I'm going to do because I might not get another chance. If I get a job, yeah. I'll probably get in the hamster wheel of work and I'll never do it again. Um, but also, £11,000 to live and work in London yeah. didn't seem to me like a good idea. Um, and the record industry doesn't pay well, and especially at the bottom, yeah. if you're just starting out. Is that because it relies on that cycle of people undertaking placements and voluntary work? Yeah. Exactly that. So how, how do you feel about that? Obviously, you've, you had quite a positive experience in the end of yeah. that. How, how do you feel about the way in which that influences the cultural sector, but I guess also the commercial sector as well? In terms of? Um, the role of placements. Yeah. Um, so unpaid work at the start of a career. I don't think I have an issue at all with placements. Um, I think they're really valuable and actually... 
it really was transformational for me in terms of showing me what job roles were out there. Yeah. Um, but what I would say is, if it's a long-term placement, which actually I think people, the employer and um, the person doing it gets actually more benefit from, I think they need to be paid. Right. Because if we think about media, um, I mean, things have changed a little bit uh, now. So you've got Leeds, which I think is going to be home to new Channel 4. Um, Manchester's obviously a really big hub for media with BBC Salford. But at the time, I felt like everything was London. Yeah. If you wanted to work in the media, that's where you had to be. And I couldn't afford to not have a job. Um, I couldn't afford just to go to London and work for free. Mm. And so I think some, some consideration needs to go into that, that actually organisations do have a bit of a responsibility to offer placements, but they should pay people. So more like an apprenticeship. Exactly, yeah. Right. So you're in your tent at Glastonbury <laughs> and you've turned down the job. What, what happened next? Um, so took a, <laughs> took a graduate loan, um, went travelling for a year, um, came back, needed to find a job, pay that loan back, <laughs> pay the parents back. Um, the only job I could get, I was based in Newcastle again at that point. Um, I got a job at Lloyd's TSB call centre, um, did that full time for about a year while I was applying for jobs. Okay. Um, I got a job interview within Lloyd's actually, I applied for a comms role down in London, um, went and had the interview there, got really close to it, really, really close to it, didn't get that. And that was kind of what my life was like for that year, applying for jobs, not being so, successful. Do you think that going away knocked you off that radar at Virgin? It did a little bit, because actually what, when I, uh, <laughs> I landed back in London um, after traveling, um, went to my friend's house, the next day I went into Virgin to go and see everyone. Yeah. To literally do the, hello, I'm back. Can I have a job? Yeah. Um, <laughs> and things had moved on. Right. Um, Just because of the speed of the development of that website of the work that Virgin were doing. That, and you've just got a, a lot of hungry, keen people. Yeah. Um, and they're not going to hold out. As much as they might like you personally, places aren't going to hold out for someone. So it was great to go back and say, look, I'm here. If there's anything comes up, let me know. Yeah. Um, but again, I think physically not being in London was a massive barrier. Right. Um, out of sight, out of mind, I think, a little bit. Um, so, yeah, coming back, I got a job that I didn't particularly want, but it you know, paid the bills at the time. Um, and for that year, just spent applying. And a lot of the jobs I was applying for were in London, um, at record companies or within media organisations. And then I think it was 2002, um, I saw a job for a PR company. And a PR company was not something I'd really... I knew of the role and I knew of a press department within um, the record company I'd been in, but a public relations agency I didn't really know too much. And when I looked into it, I actually thought it sounded quite interesting because it encompassed everything yeah. that I enjoyed. It was marketing branding, um, communications, writing, website, obviously it was a huge thing for clients at that point. So applied for a job at an organisation called Carol Marketing. Um, 
I had three interviews <laughs> for that job. Um, one interview with the MD, another one with the group account director, and then for the third interview, they gathered the three remaining candidates. There was two roles, and we had to meet all the account managers in the pub. Um, <laughs> and it was essentially, again, shout the loudest. Get your personality out. And did you win that one? And I did, thank God. <laughs> and again, what's ridiculous, if, if you asked me if that was part of my personality, I wouldn't say it is. But it's quite interesting, though. So do you think that that side of you just comes out... Because it has the, to. ...in the employment yeah. cycle? Because it, you know, yeah, because I'm put in a situation where I have to do it. Right. So, and I can actually, I can remember at the time, because I'm actually still, I still work with and I'm really close with another girl who got the job. Um, and the third girl who was being interviewed was really quiet. She didn't get involved. And I kind of knew at that point that she wouldn't get the job. Right. Um, so you'd identified who the competition was. Yeah. Then, right. And it wasn't about being too loud and brash, because obviously that can put someone yeah. off as well. A balancing act. Yeah. But I knew if I asked questions and showed interest, so was that job what you expected in terms of content? Yeah, it was um, It was a really hard 18 months because I think anyone that's worked in a PR agency, especially at a junior level, understands that you bear the brunt of a lot of work that comes your way. The structure of the organisation is you'll have um, a group account director, account directors, account managers and account execs at the bottom and the account execs are kind of like your worker bees, um, and you'll be responsible for a lot, of, a lot of things. You will find you'll be the ones who are doing late nights or early mornings, or it's quite intense. But that year and a half I spent at Carol Marketing, as much as it was really difficult, um, the amount I learned, um, that set me up for the rest of my career. Right. So by that point, did you feel like you'd found a home? I'd found, I found something that was using all these skills that I'd developed from university in a job that I actually really enjoyed. So if you think back to what my university course was, yes, I was interested in writing, but I also really liked, um, you know, I did art and design, I was interested in art and design. Yeah. At Carol Martin, I got involved in branding, um, photography. Okay. So all these different skills um, were coming out of this role. Yeah. Um, and that is something I really, really enjoyed. And it was at that point that I started to work on clients that were in arts and cultural sector as well. So I did some work with Northern Stage. At that point, they didn't have a comms officer at the time. Um, and that, again, was a, a, an area that I had a, I had a personal interest in and I just enjoyed working on. So I had a whole different range of clients. I worked with kind of corporate clients. Um, I worked with a pharmaceutical company, which wasn't in the area I was interested in, but actually I learned a lot doing that because it was kind of a branding exercise. But then I worked with a fashion designer, um, a surf brand, O'Neill. So all these different interesting clients I don't know, it just really opened my eyes to things that I could do, different routes of employment and different organisations I could work with. Yeah. Yeah. And were you attracted more to the arts and design side of it or the arts and cultural sector side of things? Yeah, that was the thing. 
I really enjoyed and got personal satisfaction from doing. Um, because of the nature of their work? Or? Well, it was something I was interested in from a personal point of view, so it would be something I would attend or do outside of work. Right. So to actually work on something that I would do anyway, yeah. um, that was really exciting. Yeah. So I worked on a production for Northern Stage um, that I probably would have gone to watch. Yeah. Um, so to see the background of it and how it was all put together and be part of that journey of that production, yeah. that was quite exciting. Yeah. And were you provided with any training during that job or is it on the job training? There was, there was training but nothing compared to what you learned on the job. Right. I mean it was it was a hard 18 months, I won't lie, it was baptism of fire. Yeah, hugely and actually you find that a lot of people um I think anyone who works in in PR their first job they'll always have stories around it. Um because it is difficult. You do you do kind of bear the brunt of everyone in the organisation because you're at the bottom. But you're learning so much as you do. So yes, it might seem difficult at the time, but I, when you leave, I think you appreciate what you the benefit been. of all that. So that that the, what had happened was I got to the point in that job after about eighteen months where I thought um, I'd like to move on. I'd like to go somewhere different, and I applied to go to another agency and I think I just applied to get out of where I was I wasn't thinking about um, anything will do yeah and it was that's a you know a really bad thing to do but I'd been offered this job at this other agency but then a job had come up at Theatre Royal Newcastle um theatre's never somewhere that again I thought you could have a career that there was jobs yeah um in those type of venues. So the job came up and they wanted a press officer. And I was thinking, oh, that's what I do, you know? That's, media relations is a massive part of what I do. So I had no theatre experience apart from this bit of work I'd done with Northern Stage, which I just assumed wouldn't be enough. Applied for that job, got it, um, had to turn down the other one. Um, they were really understanding, actually. They were really good. Um, and then, yeah, then suddenly I'm on the next stage of my career, which pushed me into this world of arts and culture that kind of defined my career from then on. So what kind of jobs did you do when you were at the theatre? What, what did that consist of? So my job title was press officer and I was the only point of contact for any media inquiries or press work um, within the organisation. So Theatre on Newcastle has about, I'd say about 50 productions a year. Um, there's usually one a new production every week. Um, for each production, you're expected to generate some media coverage about that event to push ticket sales. So you're looking to try and place interviews in local media or with local radio, television. And you often had quite interesting, well-known people in the productions as well, which kind of made that a little bit easier. We'd often have coverage on local television local radio, and then depending on the scale of the performer, artist, we might get some national coverage as well. So it was a great opportunity for me, because again, I was kind of, there was no one, not like the agency structure, um, it was me. You were it, you yeah. had to do it or it didn't get done. That's it. And um, I, there was an interesting experience that happened to me when I first joined, actually, that it was a bit of a big learning experience for me, was... Um, 
within three, I think it was three months of joining, the chief exec at the time suddenly passed away in the theatre, had a huge heart attack um, and died um, in the cafe. And I just remember at the time, it, there was obviously a lot of emotional atta attachment to him. A lot of staff had worked at the venue for years. So it was a really, really difficult time, but obviously all these inquiries were coming in and I had to field them. Yeah. I didn't really, I didn't obviously know him that well at that point. Um, I'd worked with him for a bit, but not a huge amount. I wasn't, you know, I was still relatively green in my career. Yes, I'd done this solid 18 months, but I wasn't equipped to prepare and deal with a situation like that with all these kind of questions. And I learned a really valuable lesson because I remember going in on the Saturday to catch up on work because it had been so busy. And I took a phone call from a journalist and it was someone I worked with quite regularly and knew. And I thought we were just having a casual conversation on the phone. And then the next day, all my quotes Wow. in the paper and that was a huge learning experience for me so that on on the record off the record blurring exactly that exactly that um, and again it's all these things that um yes i'd worked in the industry and in, in various roles for a long time but i still had a lot to learn your network must have been growing massively by that point if you were it you were the person that's that it. did all of that stuff is, is that a kind of turning point in your career in terms of having those connections that allowed you to have more choices and links? And Definitely. So I think um, within the role that I do in terms of public relations, contacts and relationships are key. That's kind of the most important part. And I was just building those more and more. Mm -hmm. And especially, like you say, because it was just me doing that side of work. Um, I was starting to get great relationships with all these different media institutions, but also colleagues who work within the sector as well. Right. Um, so at the time, there was Northern Stage, Live Theatre, um, Centre for Life. There was all these venues and attractions around the city and all the comms and marketing people were really friendly, got on dead well. And actually, when we talked about mentoring, support and work placements... I actually think I got so much from that network right. of people because it wasn't competitive. It wasn't about getting one up on each other. Actually, everyone shared ideas, worked together, gave each other advice. Yeah. And we're all still really good friends. I mean, you know, 20 so years on. How, how does that compare to that previous organisation that you work with, which obviously is, I, I guess, would it be fair to say it's more profit-driven? Yeah. So how does that change things? It was the collaboration that I saw within the arts and cultural sector is just... I, I've never experienced something like that before in another industry. Right. Um, because, like I say, I think if you're working very much for... I mean, cultural organisations do have to have a commercial mind and they do have to operate that way. But I don't think that's the sole um, deliverable. That's what they're aiming to achieve. They deliver into... They're looking to deliver great experiences for people. Yeah, it's a necessity that's a byproduct of our current yeah, climate. Yeah, exactly that. So um, to be in this culture where I can pick up the phone to someone in a rival venue <laughs> and ask for some advice about something and they'll give it to me. Yeah. That's it's really, really good. So did you do that a lot? Did you find all the time. doing that? Yeah, Were all you, the time. Was that reciprocated by you as well? Yeah. So I worked with... 
when I was at the theatre, I sat on an interview panel for a, a, a comms... Actually, sorry, it was a marketing assistant role. And there was a, a guy called Peter Flynn came um, to be interviewed. And he was really, really good. He didn't get that particular job. Um, but he ended up getting a press officer role at Northern Stage. He then progressed to director. And I think he now works at the Soho Theatre down in London. Um, he's an example of something that happened across this whole sector. All these young people were coming into these jobs and working their way up and yeah. everyone's gone on to do really wild and interesting yeah. different things but all really successful careers. Yeah. The great thing is I can pick up the phone to any one of those people even now and get some advice or I need a contact here, do you know them? Or, yeah. you know, that... that part of working in the cultural sector I think is something that you just don't get anywhere else and how different are the governance structures so the theatre versus that first agency that you work for it was still they still had a really good structure in place um, in terms of roles and responsibility um, and feedback I think it's I think people sometimes have this impression that arts and cultural organisations are not as professional. And actually, that's really far from the truth. Um, yes, that the experience of working at theatre, there were so many fun parts yeah. of what we did, but actually every single person in our organisation was extremely professional in what they did. And there was a, a great structure in place for staff development and feedback, all that type of stuff. Um, and working with people in all levels of the organisation. Um, so I could have a conversation with the chief exec, but I could also have a conversation with the guy at stage door. Yeah. It was all really open. Yeah. So what came, what came after that? What made you move on from no. the theatre? Um, I didn't want to do another pantomime, if I'm totally honest. I just... <laughs> what, the cycle of doing a pantomime? Yeah. That's really just, intense. It's just... It's, it's fine, but I think you get to a certain age where... You don't want to have to do another photo call in the middle of a Newcastle street with a pumpkin cart, and you know it just—it was getting—it was just—I'd I'd moved on. I think I'd got—I'd got a bit older. I was there for about four years, and all the things that were great and fun at the time when I joined started to get a little bit, a little bit tiring. Yeah. <laughs> um, so was there a clear cycle in yeah. the type? So at certain times of year, you could predict what you were going to be doing. That's it. Right. It was a bit pain by numbers at the end, and I think that was the thing that that I maybe started to lose interest a little bit. I right. kind of, because it was so busy, because there was a clear structure to what you did, I couldn't really deviate too much from that. Okay. Um, but one thing I did do, and this is, again, I think something else that I don't know if other sectors would support, was I, I knew I wasn't getting much out of this job anymore. I felt like I'd done everything I could. Um, there wasn't really much room for progression. Um, so I thought, right, what else can I do? Um, that I can benefit from while I'm here. And um, there was one night, I remember I was at theatre, and I worked press nights every week, so I, I got to see the shows, essentially. So I'd welcome media in, and then if I wanted to, I could go in and watch the show. And sometimes I did, sometimes I didn't, but I used to often think, you know, it's a wasted opportunity not to go and see something. Yeah. So I remember it was Friday night, I had a long week, there was this dance company in, and I wasn't a huge fan of dance at the time. Um, and I thought, no, come on, it's ridiculous. You know, this company's come from New York, you know, you're not going to get this chance again. And they were unreal. I walked in and they were playing um, 
I think the soundtrack they had on, they had the Rolling Stones, Earth, Wind and Fire, and it was the most joyous thing to watch. It was unreal. Um, and I went back by the stage door and I just saw the company manager, who's the person who looks after the company, the team, when they're there. And I just went in and said, look, I just want to say, I thought it was amazing. Like, I've never seen anything like that before in my life. I really enjoyed it. And we got chatting and she said, oh, look, we need, we don't know where to go. Um, you know, the, the company want to go out. Can you take us somewhere? Yeah. So I took them to a place that you know called World, World Headquarters. Oh, yes. Um, and I was, I just remember thinking it was Friday night, two in the morning, and I'm dancing in World Headquarters with some of the best dancers in the world. Um, and it was just surreal. It was ridiculous. So essentially, the company were there for two days. I got on really well with the company manager and we kept in touch. They were based in New York and she said to me, look, if you're ever out, like, come and see us. It'd be great to see you. Um, and then that got my brain ticking a bit and I thought, that'd be interesting, wouldn't it? <laughs> um, and I knew what value I'd had from this work placement at Virgin yeah. and how much that opened my eyes to things that I could do. And I'd been travelling and I loved the idea of, um, you know, seeing the world and again that really broadened my horizons introduced me to people I would have never met so I started to look into this possibility of a work placement um, in New York and uh, again it's quite interesting actually because when I think about it I'm not, <clears throat> I've not really thought about it before the, um, the parallels to the Virgin <laughs> Records opportunity and this tenaciousness of just not leaving something yeah. um, I did that again essentially with um, the marketing... With the same people that you've met and taken on that night out. <laughs> yeah. But it was, <laughs> they introduced me to the marketing person over email. And again, I just pestered. And I'd ring. I'd actually, on nights when I had a press night, because it was New York, US yeah. time, um, I would ring. So if she didn't respond to an email. <laughs> and I just... And yeah, I, I don't have had any shame at that point, but... You know, I was being professional, but trying not to annoy people. And in the end, she said, well, yeah, we'll do it. If you can, you know, swing it at your end, and, mm. you know, we'll have you here. And I broached it with the chief exec of the theatre. Um, he was happy to let me have two weeks annual leave, two weeks unpaid leave, to go and do this month's placement um, out in New York. And it happened. It kind of, um, I went out and did it. And... I'd got to a point in this career, this job where I couldn't progress anywhere. I didn't feel like I was getting anything else out of it, but I, I thought about what I could get that would benefit me. So whereabouts in New York was that? Whereabouts was that based in New York? It was in Manhattan. Right. Um, so it was a company called Alvin Ailey American Dance Theatre, okay. and they're an African-American um, dance theatre company. And they do a piece called Revelations, which is... <clears throat> You know, if you think we study Shakespeare in school, students in America study this piece, Revelations, because it's all about African-American slave trade. And okay. um, it was the, one of the powerful pieces that um, I saw out when they were performing at the theatre. So they've got a huge cultural impact in American life. Um, and they've recently just opened this purpose-built building in Manhattan, um, and, yeah, they, they gave me the chance to go out. So I did a month 
Wow. Again, month unpaid. <laughs> so living in Manhattan. Yeah. For a month. Wow. So one of the dancers um, sublet her apartment to me. Okay. Um, so she was out on tour, and I got to stay in her flat and just pay a really reduced rent. And I had this flat to myself in Manhattan. Um, and, it, and again, it was a. Uh, that experience, I've got. That was in. I'm trying to think what year that was. I think that was in 2008, maybe, I want to say. Um, and I'm still friends and close to people um, that I worked with there who actually work at big cultural organisations all across America. Um, so were they at a similar um, point in their careers to you at that point? Some were, some others. So the marketing contact that I work with, she's still at Alvin Ailey, um, She's been there probably 25 years. Right. And then there was other people who were probably around the same age. I think I was about 28, 29 when I did that. Um, other people around that similar point, but they've all moved on to different places. Mm. Some in Memphis and New Orleans and LA, and but all working for um, cultural arts organisations. See, so you, you talked about um, that kind of quite tenacious... Yeah. Um, persistent approach to seeking out opportunities or, or creating opportunities. Yeah. Is there a parallel between that and what you need to do in the type of work that you do there where you need to get that story out there or you need to get that information across and you just can't let someone say no to you in that sense? It's actually a, f a fair point and I've not really thought about that before because sometimes people often mistake what I do for maybe like a sales marketing role yeah so a sales role to me is someone who was picking up the phone actively trying to sell something that's not what i do i mean my my job is um to make a story or something as attractive as possible or, or as interesting as possible that someone chooses yeah to write about it so i wouldn't call myself a salesperson but i actually am that's yeah. probably what I do, um, but in a subtle way. And actually being able to pick up the phone to someone, and especially in a busy newsroom, and try and sell a story, then I am probably using that tenacious yeah. part of me. on that kind of skill set. Yeah. yeah, which is interesting because I haven't really right. considered that before, but that probably does come into the job I do. So up to now, apart from the travelling, or no, you, you've been down to London, but the other jobs that you've done have been northeast-based. Yeah. So you went off to Manhattan. Sounds mm. like a pretty amazing yeah. opportunity. If something had come up there, would would that have been it? You'd have just probably stayed out there, or did you always think I'm going to be coming back to to Newcastle? I would have. I would have liked to have stayed um, at the. So at the time, I kind of, again, sowed the seeds and said, if anything ever came up, um, great. But obviously, there's a commitment for the organisation. I'm not entirely sure of the process, but I think they need to sponsor. Right. If you're international, they have to sponsor you to come out. Yeah. And there's visas and everything that goes with that. So it's not as easy. But um, at the kind of close end, so this placement was near the end of the time at um, Theatre Royal. And at that point, I'd actually got a job with a organisation called Newcastle Gateshead Initiative okay. um, and it was a next step up in my career but it was looking after a lot of the festivals and events that that organisation did so again really 
um, sitting within that arts cultural sector and really interesting um, artists I was getting to work with and performers um, and using a lot of the contacts that I had that I'd developed from the theatre. Um, so did you have that in, lined up before you... That came after. Right. So I knew when I... I knew when I was kind of seeking out this placement that I wanted to leave, right. but I didn't have anything in place. Um, this job came up, moved on, um, left the theatre. Um, and at the time, I was had very close links with Visit England and Visit Britain, who were the national and international um, bodies that market Great Britain and England overseas um, and nationally. They had offices all around the world, and they had one in New York. Um, and again, I'd had really good relationships built up with the teams in New York. And as part of the job I did um, at Newcastle Gateshead Initiative, I had to host journalists that used to come over on fan visits, familiar, familiarisation visits. Um, and the contact in New York came out with them. So again, it was a showcase in the city, taking them out, um, looking after them for dinner, things like that, creating itineraries for them. Yeah. And I had a chat with her about what I'd done. And I love New York and I would have loved the opportunity to go back out. And she said, oh, well, that's interesting, though, because that might be a job. Um, and it was with Visit Britain. Um, and it was a really low-end job, but I was prepared to do it because I thought, well, actually, this... What an amazing experience, even if it's for a year, to go and live and work in New York. Mm -hmm. So that was actually all happening. I did an interview for it, kind of had a not an official letter to say you've got the job, but a verbal offer. And then the government changed in the UK and it was all around the time of austerity. Um, mm. And David Cameron, who'd just come in as Prime Minister, put a block on all public sector employment. Right. Um, so that job... Evaporated. Yeah, disappeared. Oh, that was so frustrating. It wasn't, it wasn't, because... I actually think it would have been a bad move because I was going from um, quite a comfortable career. I bought a flat. Um, I had a base. I had some roots. And I was, I'd, I'd obviously just moved to this other job where I was, had a better job role. I'd earned more money and yeah. more responsibility. And I was kind of prepared to walk away from that to take a junior position but it was in New York, and I was thinking, what a great thing yeah, to do. it's a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, or... Yeah, but actually, it probably would have been a bad thing. So you started at Newcastle Gateshead Initiative. Yeah. So what's this, about 2010, by the sound of that, if the government yeah. changed? Yeah, yeah. So was that job similar to the jobs that you'd done previously, or were there different elements that were added into that? So that particular job was um, media and PR manager, so quite similar to what I did at the theatre, but a lot more work on a national scale. So a lot of the work at the theatre was dealing with regional media, but at Newcastle Gateshead Initiative, the focus was about attracting visitors to the city. So everything was about trying to generate coverage outside of the northeast. Okay. So for people to think, wow, what a great place to go and visit. So it was a lot harder um, to generate. So who was, who was the funders behind NGI at that point? So how was that? Because obviously that's linked in, isn't it, with a massive regeneration yeah. programme that's happened in Gateshead, Newcastle, and the surrounding area. Exactly that. So NGI, as it was coined at the time, 
Um, that organisation was created to deliver Newcastle and Gateshead bid to be European capital of culture. Okay. Um, so it was a very, very small team at the time. Um, all kind of history now, but we lost out to Liverpool um, for European capital of culture. But the team thought, and the city um, on both sides of the river, Gateshead and Newcastle thought, well, we've done all this work. We were the people's choice, I think, as well at that point. Yeah. You know, people really wanted us to win. Um, and they thought, we're just going to do it. We're going to deliver this 10-year programme of arts and culture um, that's going to completely change people's perceptions of the place and who we are. So they did, and that's what Newcastle Gates Initiative was. So I worked on the festivals and events programme. It was working with international artists and just really large-scale, exciting, ambitious works mm. that generated lots of media coverage. So for me, working in that role, it was great because I'd gone from, um, you know, not there's anything wrong with it, but generating, you know, local relationships. But then this, uh, now I was getting a chance to generate all these national yeah. contacts at, you know, BBC and um, Channel 4, ITV and, you know, Sky Arts, all these different programmes. So it was a great yeah. step again for me in my career. So how does that feel on a day-to-day -day basis to work in that kind of environment? That the, the type of work that you're describing sounds like it's not necessarily a nine-to-five kind of job. No, it's not. It's not. Um, it's strange because I, I, my job isn't nine-to-five and it never has been, but it's, it, that's never been an issue for me because I think it's something I've always enjoyed doing um, and it's quite different. So I think if you were doing the same thing all the time um, and you were working more hours and it was, you know, out of your normal working hours uh, pattern, it would get frustrating and a bit boring. But actually, it's just so varied. And what I love about that particular job and a lot of the jobs that I do is about meeting different people. Yeah. So um, we used to host about 100 journalists every year and we always had to meet them in person. And we generally did that um, <clears throat> over dinner or we'd meet them for lunch or take them on a walking tour around the city. Um, and that could be weekends, evenings, all sorts of stuff. And, um, you know, again, what a great thing yeah. to get to do. You're meeting people from all over the world. quite performative in terms of your role. So always having to be on. Yeah. Is that, you know, I mean, I'm thinking about what you said earlier about that phone call with a journalist. Yeah. And I guess, you know, you always have to be kind of attuned to what's happening around you all of the yeah. time. Yeah. I think um, you've got to have an appetite and an interest in the news, media, yeah. generally what's going on in the world, because you're always seeking out opportunities yeah. for different people. And depending on if you work on an in-house role or an agency role. Um, you know, if you work in an agency, you're working for lots of different clients who have all got different interests, so you really need to have a broad... Yeah. And do, do you feel like you get time within that job to explore the information or to, to gather the information that you need to put that picture together, or is that something that you're constantly doing on your mobile phone, on a train, or outside of that? Are you... It's... I say I, I know a lot of things about a wide range of topics, but not a deep knowledge. Right. <laughs> um, so, you know, for example, someone's worked in an, a single organisation for 10 years, 
they know a huge amount about how that organisation operates, the people within it, the work they do. Yeah. I know a huge amount of things about lots of different stuff, yeah. different sectors of industry, different clients. Um, so... Would you underpinned by a big transferable skill set? That's it, yeah. So, like you say, it's, you need to be switched on all the time because my phone could go at any point. Um, and I need to react to it. I've had calls on Christmas Day and all sorts before that I've had to deal with. Yeah. Um, times I've had to go in the office late at night or, you know, that, that is part and parcel. It's not, it's not um, a common occurrence, yeah. but it does happen. But if you want to work in the media, and especially now, because obviously that's all the 24-hour news cycles completely changed since I've been working in media. That didn't really exist when I started. Yeah. But now there's an appetite for news all the time. <laughs> so was that, that, that ascent of, of the news cycle or the acceleration mm. of the news cycle or constant news cycle is tied into your progression? So has that become more, more intense and a more integral part of your work as you've, as you've got older? What's interesting, and I think just within... I think media in general, because there's been such a fragmentation within the media industry, there's so many outlets um, now that it can actually be, it can dilute your message quite a bit for organisations because the audience, it's not like when, you know, years ago you had four channels on the telly. Yeah. You know, you've got hundreds now, you've got podcasts, you've got millions of websites, you've got all these different places that people find their news or engage with um, information. So the huge change within my industry is that organisations are, are now publishers. Yeah. It's not about... So PR or media relations element is all about generating third-party endorsement. It's all about getting someone else to say how good you are at something or, or endorsing you. Um, when actually organisations are just doing that themselves now. Obviously, yeah. you don't get... The, the media relations or that, that third party element is still really key and that can be a stakeholder as well or another organisation but actually most of what I do these days for clients is about generating their own content through blogs, case studies you know, going back to what I did at university, writing for the web Yeah. you know yeah. so you were at NGI mm -hmm. how long were you there for in total? 10 years and did your role change at all whilst you were there? Not a huge amount. Um, it was all based around festivals and events. It was all based around media, um, media and PR. But again, because the programme changed, it was always something different. My role wasn't the same. Right. I was working on different festivals, different events. It was always, you know, things ranging from um, Rugby World Cup to Olympics, um, right. all sorts of different things. Um, and it was always... So it was always a cultural element as well. So for Rugby World Cup, we delivered um, a fan zone and cultural experiences in the city, um, similar for Olympics as well. So it was all areas that I had an interest in, so the job was really satisfying. Yeah. Um, and then I got to a point where I think probably about six or seven years into the job, where, again, I started to feel a bit you know, there's nowhere for me to progress. You know, I don't really know where I'm going to go. Um, and I started to get itchy feet and wanted to move on, but I couldn't think where to move to. 
Were well, you thinking at this point, I don't want to move away from the northeast unless there's something dramatically different? Yeah, I think the age I was at, I mean, I would have been, I think I was 30, 37, 38, I think, right. when I started to think about where I would go to next. And at that point, again, I, I, roots were f- firmly placed here. The thought of moving yeah. anywhere just wasn't a priority for me. But in terms of um, organisations in, in the area that I wanted to work with and what they did, NGI was the best fit. Yeah. Um, that must be quite difficult then, kind of thinking, I've got quite limited options here. Yeah. Could you, you know, you know were you thinking to yourself, I just need to wait around for someone to leave for me to get a I knew that wouldn't happen. And I, and I, and it, I think I knew... I think I knew that, that I'd got everything from that organisation that I wanted to. Right. So I think I knew I had to go or had to do something different. Um, so at the time, obviously I'd been in my career quite a long time at that point. I'd met different people who did different things. Um, I'd met quite a lot of freelancers. Um, people that did freelance PR and marketing and we'd actually use some in the organisation for people who'd maybe gone on maternity leave, yep. something like that. Um, again, a, a kind of way of working I'd not thought, thought about much before. I'd always um, liked the stability and security of a job and a salary every month. Um, then I kind of explored this concept of testing the waters and maybe going part-time. Right. So, you know, part-time at NGI. And at the time, obviously, another horrendous financial crash yeah. that the whole country was dealing with and, and because Newcastle Gates Initiative was funded primarily through the two councils, they had to make savings. Yeah. Um, so me offering to go part-time was probably quite a good thing. Do you, do you think that... I mean, that's quite... It's an interesting move, isn't it? So to re- make a request to go part-time sends quite mixed messages yeah. to your employer, doesn't it? So you, what did that feel like? <laughs> um, I mean, luckily, I've got... A, a, and I still do have a great relationship with... My, my manager at the time and I think she knew in my head where I was going right did you actually tell did you say I'm going to go freelance or did you just say I want to go part time she knew that was the plan that I would explore the freelance and I think she knew she knew eventually that would probably be where I would go I didn't at that point <laughs> she did um, it's a sign of a good manager I know it's true <laughs> um, and yeah, we chatted about it, and because I'd, I'd raised it once before, um, it got turned down, and then I raised it again, and at the, the point in which I raised it again, it was the perfect time. The organisation had to make savings. So we, were you lining things up at the point that you asked, or did you just do it and think, I'm going to figure out what comes next after they've given me an answer on this one? So again, when we talk, we've talked a lot about kind of that mentoring and support um, within the sector and within the industry. So there was um, a woman called Sarah Hall, who runs a company called Sarah Hall Consulting. She'd done maternity leave cover for someone in our organisation. Um, I'd known Sarah for years, but got to know her really well over that time. Um, she was going on maternity leave. Now, obviously, she owns her own business. Um, she couldn't take a huge amount of time off. Yeah. Um, so we chatted about the fact that I might be able to help her out. Um, and Sarah did a lot of um, arts and cultural clients as well. She did a broad range of things, but that was another area she did. So I knew that there would be work in that area for me. Um, 
so I tested that idea. I hadn't tested the idea of generating my own clients necessarily, um, but I knew that I had that Sarah would be this nice toe in the water for me. Bridge the potential financial hole that that goes yeah, time, exactly. And then it worked for her as well um, in terms of her business structure. Yeah, so NGI said yes, and I was going part time. Um, and so was that scary? Yeah, it was awful. <laughs> it was awful. <laughs> what kind of awful? Um, the main thing for me was um, finances that I was worried about. So I'd bought a flat um, and I'd, I'd struggled at the time because when I bought it, I'd lost an honorarium of the organisation that I'd worked with, which set me back financially. So I, it was actually really difficult. Um, and working at NGI was one of the first times I felt not completely financially stable, but... Um, comfortable yeah. and so to walk away from that and put myself in a position where I could be um, financially unstable and I've got a mortgage to pay really worried me um, so I tried to keep some savings as much as I could um, to, as a little bit of a buffer but I had to make the leap um, I had to try it because yeah. if I didn't I'd never know so I started and um, what I did was at the time I obviously had this link with Sarah Hall, who already ran an established agency, and she was offer, she was able to put work my way, but I also wanted to generate work for myself. I wanted to have my own presence in my own company. So going back to all this branding experience and marketing experience that I'd had, I um, came up with this company, Ludlow Street, that was gonna be that was gonna be me, that was gonna be David Brookbanks' company. Um, and the reason I went for Ludlow Street. Um, is because it's a street in New York and it's on the Lower East Side but it's really well known for art and culture um, and I thought what a lovely connection there's a city that I love and have this great experience in um, and this sector that I have a passion for and I can kind of combine the two to create yeah, things together yeah to create this company that will hopefully say what I'm about um, to people so that was the plan. So I registered Ludlow Street as a business and started to operate. Um, and it was about using these connections, what we talked about before, about all these people I know in all these different areas. Um, and the work started to come. So how did you get that together? So there's lots of stuff when you start your own company that's potentially quite scary. Yeah. And there's a massive unknown... Were there people that were advising you at that point? Or were you just figuring it out for yourself as you went along? So Sarah, again, was just... Person that was advising, what, like, do this with your tax, do this with yeah. your, you know, this is how you bridge this financial she window. Was a, she was amazing, absolutely brilliant. Gave so much of her time. Um, and she obviously she's had mentoring, she's had support from people, but she was able to offer that to me and still does. Yeah. Even now. So that's on an informal basis. That's just on a kind of peer, you that's know, it. you ring her up and ask her, how do I help? Yeah, yeah. help me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> there, was, there was a lot of that. Yeah. Um, and, but what I didn't want to do was find myself working for someone else. Yeah, yeah. That must have been quite a temptation, especially if she was going on maternity leave. That's it. You could have found yourself in a similar yeah. situation again. Yeah. So... I had to feel the fear a little bit and, and kind of say, yeah, I can pick up these bits, but right. I'm going to give myself the time 
So how did you put that message out there at first that you were available for freelance work? Through all the contacts I'd developed. So just emailing people and saying, I'm now available. These are the services that I'm offering. And, you know, I'm happy to have a chat or pitch for an idea. Or... That's it. So if you think about 10 years at Newcastle Gates Initiative, I'd work with every single cultural venue in yeah. the city. I'd had great relationships with all these people because, like we've talked about before, I worked at the Theatre Royal with when all these people were coming up. Yeah. So we were all in it together. Connected, yeah. And all these people had gone on to these amazing positions and great roles within these organisations. And I could now reach out to them and say, look. Yeah. So were you feeling that there were vacancies for that kind of opportunity or were you moving into a crowded workspace? I knew there was um I knew there was opportunities and especially within the arts and cultural sector because I'd seen that organisations had picked up freelancers for particular projects. Right. Um, so a lot of the venues had someone internally, but sometimes they needed support with maybe a production or a festival they were doing or a particular project. So I knew there was scope and opportunity. And again, I think what's so nice about the sector is you've got people doing that job. There's already lots of established people doing what I want to do. Yes. I got help and advice from every single one of them. No one was protective or yeah. said, you know, that's my patch, stay away. It's really interesting, isn't it? Everything was yeah. about help and support and, oh, you could, we could collaborate on this, you could help us with this, or... So do you do a lot of collaboration? Do you put loads. bits in with other freelancers to kind of create enough of a workforce, I guess, it. To, to cover it? All the time. Right. All the time. And will that come from different people that will approach you or you'll approach them and say, do you want to go in on this together? A bit of both. How can we figure out a way of working? Yeah, a little bit of both. So I've always worked with... So we talked before about Carol Marketing when I got that first job and uh, there was a girl on at the same time going for one of the positions called Emma Pibus. Um, we've been friends you know, for 20 years now and Emma is pretty much matched what I've done in terms of going part-time, and then dipping yeah. the toe in freelance. So we actually both work together quite often yeah. um, on freelance projects, but we also work with different people as well. So there's a logical question that I feel like I have to ask there then. So what about growth? Are you just want to keep this as a, I think the phrase is company for one, isn't it? Or And, and working with other people when you feel that you need a bigger team or, you know, is there a, you know, is that something that you might want to do in the future? Well, there's a bit of a phrase that, that people use called lifestyle business. Right. Um, and that's what I feel like Ludlow Street is. I've never had aspirations to own or run a company, yeah. employ staff, um, because with that, I think comes a total different skill set. Yeah. Because at the minute I'm doing the doing. Yeah. I do everything. Yeah. Um, I also do, you know, yes, I've got to do my taxes, my accounts and all the account management side that comes with it, but I got that experience at Carol Marketing, looking after clients. Um, you know, I've got all the experience of doing the doing from Theatre Royal NGI, so I'm just putting everything into practice. Yeah. Um, and what's interesting is this model of working um, that... If you think about it, I'm not, I don't employ staff, um, I have none of the overheads, I don't own an office, you know, we're sat in my office at the minute, in my house, yeah. um, 
So if I need to work with someone, I can just ring someone up and because I've got a great relationship with them, we don't need to um, create a contract or yeah. anything like that. So it's a really flexible model. Yeah. So do you find it easy to divide your time between billable client work and then say your own CPD and that development work that you have to do for the business? How does that work for you? That That's a really hard balance and still something I don't think I've ever cracked and I wonder if I ever will. <laughs> um, I had an issue when I first went freelance that I took anything I could. Um, so obviously we chatted about the fact that I went part-time and part-time freelance and obviously it got to a point where I couldn't balance both. Um, I had an opportunity to work on a project called Great Expression of the North at Newcastle Gates Initiative, which was going to be a huge project, huge undertaking. I couldn't deliver it in three days. Um, a week, they asked me if I'd go back more. I knew that would affect the freelance business that I'd spent so long building up. So I made the decision to leave, go full freelance. Um, and at that point, again, the panic sets in and you throw the feelers out and you'll take anything right. because the money has to come in. And I wasn't thinking about the direction of how I wanted the business to go and what I wanted people to... Um, associate with me and yeah. what so build how to build your reputation yeah you know, with a particular specialism in that's that. it like what my focus areas were um so that th that's changed i've got a lot better in terms of selecting the type of work i want to do um but i find when you're freelance and you own and operate your own business you're just you're so busy all the time yeah. It's extremely difficult to make extra time to do career progression and think. I sometimes, I sometimes worry that I don't think. So it's still easy to get into a cycle yeah. of just responding to the things that you need to do to bring yeah. the money in. And, and I, I guess some of that you can argue is potentially strategic, isn't it? Which is, okay, I can see a new area of this work yeah. developing and I need to upskill somehow. And so that, that's difficult to kind of ring fence time there where it's not billable. Well, I think in the... So I've been full-time freelance for, I think, 18 months now. Okay. Um, and I... And, and how long before that were you part-time? I think about three or four years. So you're about five, four, four, four and a half, five years in... That's it. ...to, to this process. Yeah. So um, you're just getting to a point now where you're kind of starting to say politely... No, yeah, I don't have capacity or... It's, well, it's having the, having the confidence to say no. That can be really hard when you own and run a business because it seems ridiculous to turn work away. Yeah. But um, then, yeah, yeah. But you wouldn't keep saying yes to work if you were working in an organisation. True. It's just that it's... You know, it's a different financial structure that sits behind it, yeah. isn't it? And, and sometimes, obviously, it's less less about the finances because actually if I'm taking on lots of work and I'm not performing and delivering yeah. to yeah. the best of my ability that's going to affect the quality yeah. and then that will affect what, how people um, yeah. perceive me and the work I do Are you conscious that um, saying no to things sends a particular message out that you might not get 
work from that organisation or project in the future. And that is a worry. That, that, that did concern me when I first started to think, well, will they come back? Um, and actually, my experience so far is, is that actually they will. Right. Because if your reputation and the quality of what you do is good enough, mm, yeah. people will come back to you. And it's actually not a bad thing to be busy. You know, if someone's asking me to deliver something and I'm not able to because I'm too busy, yeah. that's not a bad message. <laughs> and you mentioned before about the nature of this work means that you've got to be responsive to particular cycles in the news or events that happen that might be outside of your control. So what does that feel like in terms of managing your time and your commitment to work? Is it just a given that you will have to do stuff outside of that nine to five stuff? Yeah, yeah. And I think with anything like that, um, if, if you accept that that's how it is, that's not a problem. It doesn't, you don't get frustrated, you don't get annoyed by that, that, you know, I might put my laptop down at six o'clock, but then I have to pick it up again at half eight and do something else. But the beauty of being freelance is that, let's say I'm required to do something for two hours in the evening, I might be able to claw that time back um, the next day. Yeah. yeah. I can have a flexible working model. So it's not like, say, when I was part-time freelance and part-time at NGI, whereas I might be at NGI working late. I'm not getting paid for that. If that was spent on my own business, I could have been generating some income and building the business at the same time. Yeah. yeah. So actually that part-time employment freelance model was really difficult yeah, yeah and probably not best for either yeah and do you check emails <coughs> all the time yeah and does that involve you having to be on twitter whatsapp email do you find that all of this stuff's coming through different channels to you yeah. and it's, it'll depend on the client as well because yeah. some so um i've got i've got one particular client who um you know, if they need something, they'll message me through WhatsApp. Mm. Or I've got someone else who prefers email. Um, again, you just... It's a juggling act. Right. Um, but you get used to it. And I think throughout my career, I've always worked on multiple things at one time. Different areas. I kind of... I, I, I think it would scare me if I listed probably what I do on a day-to-day basis and who I work for and the things that I do because it's so varied Um, but somehow I can make it work. So what does taking time off or annual leave feel like? (laughs) So last year I took three days. (laughs) That was it. Okay. I tried to take a week off um, and I couldn't. There was something that I had to do for a client so that was two, day, two days gone. So I managed to get three days um, the first year that I was full-time freelance. Um, I often work weekends. I think I've worked every Sunday since I went even part-time freelance. It's just become a habit for me now. Um, and I don't say that in a bad way because it actually fits in my lifestyle that I wake up on a Sunday morning. Doing a few hours here and there. Exactly that. Nine to five. Yeah. Okay. So I'll maybe do 9 till 12 on a Sunday, but I get my entire Sunday afternoon that I can still do stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, It's just about finding a working pattern that works for you. 
Um, but the flexibility is the key. And I think when you work for yourself, um, the passion's there. You've got, you've got a vested interest in making your organisation, whatever it is, if it's or your personal brand, be as successful as possible. Yeah. Um, so everything I do, I know, is for the benefit of Ludlow Street. Yeah. yeah. So what advice would you give to somebody that might be thinking about working in this way or developing a career that might have a, a pattern that's similar to yours? I think um, use your contacts as much as you can um, and you'll be amazed at how many people are open to provide advice and collaborate with you and provide support, mentoring. Um, I've learned so, so much from just reaching out to people and asking for help and advice when I've needed it. Um, as we talked about before, being confident enough to be able to say no to things. Um, you'll know when something doesn't feel right and have the confidence to know that that's okay, that you can walk away from something. And I think I've always just tried to have a real professional approach to what I do and just try and do the best job I can all the time. Okay, well, thank you very much uh, for your time today, David, and good luck in the future. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Don't forget, you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, SoundCloud and Facebook using the handle Cultural Peeps. And if you want a bit more information about the Careers Pathway project or about any of the conversations or participants, then there's a project blog which is available at culturalpeeps.wordpress.com. 